welcome to the show and thank you so much for checking it out. I just want to remind everyone, if you haven't yet done so, please subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'm very close to that 1,000 subscribers and every one subscriber counts. So until I get that 1,000 subscribers, I'm going to be very annoying. So if you want to stop annoying me, then you could annoy other people so that we can just get to that 1,000 subscribers and be done with it. So if you haven't subscribed, subscribe. If you have already subscribed, then find someone else who can also subscribe. And anyways, my guest today is Toure. He is an author, music journalist, and TV personality. And he recently wrote a book about Prince called Nothing Compares to You. So we're going to talk a lot about Prince today and how talented he was and how accurate was the Chappelle Show depiction, why you might have him knocking on your door if you lived in Minneapolis back in the day. And uh, plus, we're going to talk about some of uh, Toure's other interviews, including Snoop Dogg, Courtney Love, uh, the time he pissed off Suge Knight. That's a pretty good story. And he'll give me some interview tips at the end that I think are very valuable. So disclaimer on this interview, we did it via Zoom, which is usually fine, but the audio quality is not great on this one, especially towards the end. He cuts in and out a little bit. So I edited some of the stuff uh, to try to make it better, but I can't do much when the audio cuts out. So just try to make it through if you can. And if you can't, I understand, but it's really too bad because there really is some great content in this episode. So there you go. How are you doing today? Good, how are you? Thanks for having me. Great. Wow, look at all those books behind you. you look, you're talking about my wall, but I'm looking at yours. I'm like, did you read all those books? No, not all of them. Some of them are for the future or for reference. Um, a few of them are my wife's, but um, I've, I've, I've dug into a lot of them. So, yeah. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, I have a bunch of books too. And like, I probably read about half of them. And like, I don't know why I keep buying books when I haven't read the ones I have, but you know, it's like, know. it's a bad habit to get into, but it's seduced uh, by a, the idea of a new book. You yeah. know, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this book. Oh, but this book came out. Oh, I got to get that information in my brain right away. Okay. I'll stop this one. I'll read that right. one. And I'll get through that one. Oh, I should go back to my previous book. But I'm really excited about this other book that just came out. And then and on it goes and on it goes. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so let's just dive into your book. So the book is called Nothing Compares to You. And it's about Prince. Yeah. Yeah. So Prince. I mean, I've always been. It sounds like you're you're probably a bigger fan than me. But I, I became a fan, I think, probably when the Batman movie came out and I was a kid. And I was like, oh, this music's like really good. And I remember getting the tape of that soundtrack. And I was like, oh, this is this is like really good music. And I think he influenced so many musicians. I was just at the Guns N' Roses concert last night, and the bass player Duff had the Prince uh symbol on his on his bass play on his bass guitar. I was like, oh, that's pretty crazy. What are the odds of that? I'm interviewing you today. And I mean, Prince seems kind of everywhere once you start looking for him, kind of see him all over the place. Um, I remember, I don't remember not knowing who he was. I remember hearing the song Dirty Mind and being young enough that I was like, oh my God, like, that's crazy thing to say. Oh my God, he's got a dirty mind. Oh my God. And it seemed shocking. And like, he wanted to shock. That was his whole thing at that point. Um, and he got our attention. And in the years after that, he was becoming a real sort of 
celebrity within the black community and people who loved music, black people love music were like, Prince is the man. And we're talking about through controversy in 1999, Prince is the man, his music's incredible. You know, you gotta be into Prince. So the, definitely the, the older brothers and the young adults I was around were definitely talking about Prince as much as anybody. Um, and Purple Rain just changed the party. Controversy did a little bit, bringing a lot of white fans in, but Purple Rain made it a global phenomenon to where everybody was into Prince. And I mean, the band tells a story of going out on the Controversy tour and starting out doing, you know, places like Atlanta, New Orleans, what have you, mm -hmm. and performing for, you know, like 80% black audiences. And as the tour went on, the audiences started to get whiter and whiter to where they ended up doubling back and doing the, the first cities again. And now they're doing them for 60, 70, 80% white audiences. Because, you know, now white rock radio is catching on and playing it. And, and more white fans are coming into the party. So, you know, it, it's been interesting to see him grow and change in terms of the fan base growing as time went on. And wasn't that by design? Like he wanted to be mainstream and make it. I feel like I was going to ask you, do you think it was like more so than even artistic integrity? Like, I think he wanted to be more mainstream Right. It wasn't more about like some artists would feel like it's more like, oh, this is like, you know, you're you're messing with my artistic integrity. I don't want to sell out. But for Prince, I feel like he just wanted to make it and be successful and be as big as he could. A hundred percent. You know, at that point, there was a lot of segregation within the music business in terms of black artists go in the urban department. They get a smaller budget than the pop budget. They are promoted to soul train and certain clubs and certain cities and certain he he wanted from the beginning to not be with the urban staff and the urban budget not because he didn't want to be black he very much loved being black but he wanted as you were alluding to the pop budget and the, the you know the pop staff and to be a star for the whole world and to be american bandstand as well as soul train he wanted both things and that was that was part of everything that was part of how he planned out uh, the band. He was thinking about Sly and the Family Stone. He was thinking about Fleetwood Mac. You know, they are uh, white, especially Sly and the Family Stone. They're white and black. They're male and female. I want some of that. You know, both those things. You know, so Gail Chapman was playing keyboards in an early iteration of the revolution. Um, Lisa right, Coleman. Right, that was replaced. by design, right? He put white people in the Absolutely. band. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So that it would be like, you know, this is this is both of us. So, you know, everybody feel comfortable coming into this party. Um, you know, Lisa Cole, Lisa Coleman replaces Gail Chapman. Wendy Melvoin comes in replacing Des Dickerson, you know, because he wants you know, they talked about, you know, there were definitely I mean, w Wendy and Lisa are extraordinary players who are lifelong musicians who come in with extraordinary chops. Um you know, but the, the guys from the beginning, you know, before they were in, talk about we definitely left over certain musicians who may have been technically better because we wanted to make sure that we got some white folks in the group just so that there was a variety of people in, you know, on the stage and everybody would see themselves represented. And, you know, I know um, 
you know, for Prince's female fans to see Wendy and Lisa up there rocking with him meant a tremendous amount to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing too. Like you talk about his band, but really, I mean, he didn't even need a band because he could do everything himself. Like, what is the line? Like, Eric, they asked Eric Clapton, um, "What's it feel like to be the best guitar player?" And he said, "I don't know. You'll have to ask Prince because he could play guitar, drums, bass, and sing, and write songs and write lyrics, and he excelled at all those things." I, I have heard some dispute about whether or not our anti-vaxxer friend Eric Clapton actually said that. But oh. but that doesn't matter. The point you're making right. is absolutely right, that he played every instrument um, and played them at an extraordinary elite level. And, um, you know, I mean, like when you're in his band, like he might come over and play the drums better than you and play the bass better than right. you and play the keys better than you. And he would go in the studio all by himself from his first album and just make the whole thing all by himself, uh, you know, in the studio. He, he used an engineer, but like there were no producers, you know, he, he used, he, he relied more on the horn players. He wasn't really that good at the horns. Mm. And when I talked to some serious musicians about it, they were like that you really have to change your lips, right? The embouchure to get, the right uh, sound out of a saxophone or a trumpet or what have you. And so that's a whole different journey to mastery. Um, But like anything else he could do. Yeah. How did he, Uh, um, you talked about, I think in the book, it said he played the guitar and the keyboard and sang at the same time. How did he even do that? I I do not do that. So I couldn't, you know, but I mean, like he was one of these musical geniuses who could you know do all these sorts of things at the same time right i mean look this is a person who had uh seizures as a very very young person that really freaked out his parents and he said to his mother one day as a very young person five six years old i'm not going to do that anymore i'm going to stop having seizures and um he did you know, so I mean, like, just an extraordinary amount of of will, of ability to manifest his dreams, of being able to make anything come true. Because you know, he was he was a person who was basically abandoned by his parents at around thirteen, had no money. Minneapolis, yeah, yeah, Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan, but like Minneapolis did not have you know, a history of creating, you know, great musicians, um, you know, which is no slight, but it's not, you know, it's not a a New York, LA, Seattle, New Orleans, you know, where people in the music industry was looking for people from, um, you know, why he succeeded is kind of like, wow, but like he, he willed it. I mean, like there was no plan B for this guy. He was dying to succeed. Well, yeah. And he was so competitive. He had an interesting personality because he had different sides, but it's like, he's competitive and serious, but angry, but also funny. And he was, and also you say that the competitiveness maybe hurt him later down the line because he was so competitive. Like he couldn't collaborate like in the, uh, the uh, Michael Jackson, the USA for the the world or whatever. We are the world. He didn't, he wouldn't, didn't do that because he couldn't be in charge of it. Look, you know, we are the world was this massive thing. I mean, like we, we knew that it was coming, right? And like 
Quincy Jones, one of the biggest names in music, and Michael Jackson, you know, one of the biggest recording artists in the world, maybe the biggest recording artist in the world at that time. We're like, okay, we're calling everybody. We're doing it on the night after the American Music Awards. So everybody's in town and everybody who was a super brand name in music was going to be there. And Prince was in town. They asked him over and over, please come do this. This is going to be a huge deal. You know, we're going to have a special section of the song for just you and Michael. And he would not do it because he was not a joiner. He wouldn't give up control. He didn't want to be on the same level as a bunch of other people. He's like, you know, I have to be above. So he gave them a song. He gave them his own song. Here, Hmm. you can have this. So he's like, I'm contributing, but I'm not going to be part of that group. Yeah, is it maybe too because it was almost maybe like a defense mechanism? Because he was kind of bullied in high school. They said he was kind of like a nerd. Like, what did they, the comparison in your book is you said he was like uh, Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite. That's what people said, that he was like Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite. He was like a nerd, which is kind of amazing to imagine. But I mean, like what happened, what became of him was amazing to the people who went to high school with him to imagine. Because they were like, where did this guy get this personality implant? Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, he, he, he struggled with being a part of groups and, and like the, putting the revolution aside, just, you know, the family structure had broken down early in his life. So just being part of any sort of group was hard for him. Yeah, it seemed like he had a hard time communicating too, like with with his band members, with Gail, the keyboard player. Like there was some outfit that he wanted her to wear, but he gave her like the wrong size. And he said, you will wear this outfit or you are out of the band or something. And it was like, I like the way she put it. She said the way he handled certain issues was hard. It was like a very simple thing, but he made it complicated. Yeah, Gail saw him and others did too as fairly immature in terms of how he was able to interact with other people. Extraordinarily mature in terms of music, but Mm -hmm. immature at how he related to people. And this is part of the core of what happens in his childhood, right? He he leaves his mother's house because he doesn't like her and he hates his stepfather. And then he's with his father for about six months and his father kicks him out for bringing girls over to the house. So after that, he is aban- He feels abandoned by his parents and the drive to become a rock star at all costs in order to show my parents that I was a worthwhile and valuable person, that rises up within him. So he spends his teenage years living in the home of a woman named Bernadette Anderson, who has six kids, uh, most of them older than him, um, extraordinarily maternal person people were like you know if you lived around this area it wouldn't be shocking that he would end up at her house because she was like a second mother to a lot of people um he grows up in her house but like i said she has six kids he's living in her basement uh she's divorced and pursuing an advanced degree in social work Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like she had a lot of time to be mother henning over him and making sure he's eating his vegetables and all sorts. Now, she was extraordinarily encouraging. You know, when he's 13, 14, 
15, writing his first songs and playing them for her in the kitchen. And she's this great audience and like, you know, just applauding him and encouraging him when he's just starting, when you really need encouragement, when your songs probably suck. But if somebody gives you encouragement, you keep going. Mm. She was that for him. That said, I imagine she, like I said, she probably didn't have that much time to be all on top of him the way like, you know, a normal mother, most mothers are on top of their kids. So he is able to spend his teens exactly the way he wants, which is constantly working on music all the time. Um, Is he also doing the social development that normal teenagers do? No, it seems that he was not. It seems he was not learning how to do that basic, you know, one-on-one or one-on-two, whatever interaction with people. So when he gets, you know, later in his teens and his twenties, he struggles with how to interact with people. Now, give him a guitar in front of a hundred thousand people. He can rock that one-on-one much trickier. Just express your thoughts and your feelings with a single person much harder and if we weren't talking about music forget about it yeah but it sounds like he used that pain the rejection and just put it all like he was that that's what motivated him and and even later when he was booed off the stage uh when they opened for the rolling stones he used that pain and put it into uh the 1999 album which it was a response to him being booed off the stage right and that's some of his most brilliant work yeah, I mean, like the Rolling Stones situation is crazy. Mick and Keith had known who he was, wanted their crowd to get to know him a little bit better. Um, this is when he's promoting Dirty Mind. Uh, so he was supposed to do several dates with the Rolling Stones. He he did a Friday and a Sunday with the Rolling Stones. I believe it's 81. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a biker kind of crowd. It was the sort of... People who would later be MAGA. It was very aggressive. They also had Jay Giles Band and George Thorogood and the Destroyers were on the bill. And Prince comes out, you know, with his falsetto, wearing like women's clothes. You know, at that point, a mm-hmm. man wearing women's clothes was very triggering. You know, we didn't have the sort of trans awareness that we have now. Um, we didn't even have the the gay awareness that we have now at that point, like people were like completely freaked out. The He does a couple of songs. The audience starts throwing stuff at him, food, bottles, you know, it's going nuts. He leaves. He's so upset, so hurt, flies back to Minneapolis. Mick calls him. Keith calls him. Des Dickerson calls him. You can't run away. You got to come back. We got to do another show. So he flies back and does the Sunday show. But now the audience is like ready for him. So they're throwing stuff again. He's super hurt and angry and upset. But yeah, so this is one of the the seminal moments in the career because he does have that that drive and determination to keep going. Because that was Mark Brown, his bassist's uh, first shows, the Rolling Stones shows. 
Yeah. And he's like, I don't, this is, what did I get myself into? <laughs> you know, and he's like, I feel so bad for me. that guy for some reason. Like, he got kicked oh in the chest and like all the stories. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm but, like, oh my God, like the, the nickname alone makes me cringe. And I'm just like, that guy seems like he just got shit on by Prince. Well, but, but, but Prince is like, when we get to Detroit, it's going to be different because he knew his audience. That's not my yeah. audience. When okay. he's headlining in Detroit, now we're rocking. Now this is amazing. Now this is a show. But yeah, out of that experience, Morris Day and others said, um, he said, you know, I gotta, I gotta stop with the, um, you know, with with some of these women's clothes and wear a little bit more clothes because um, this is not necessarily, this is not working. Right. Yeah. Well, and then you talk about his his family background, and I think he kind of made amends with his father a little bit more, but not so much his mother. But then the mom did come back in the picture and he kind of struggled with, you know, he did buy her house, but he kind of struggled with that decision. It it kind of reminded me, I don't know if you're familiar with Quentin Tarantino, but I guess it was like, it's kind of a similar story where the mom kind of didn't support his dreams. And so he decided I'm never going to give you any money. And he never did. He never gave the mom, but Prince did buy his mom a house, which it still sounds like. I'm a huge Tarantino fan, but I did not know that angle ah. of the story that's really interesting yeah um, like he never he's he decided he's never gonna i guess the only he, he, the only thing he did for his mom was he helped her out of the uh a jam with the irs but he never like bought her house or you know cars or any of that stuff so and it's interesting that prince did buy his mom but it sounded like he did you know he kind of struggled with that it's not like the mom came back and it was like it was very fake that she was all of a sudden interested in, in her son where she had kind of abandoned him like you said yeah, I mean, you know, he he really did not like his mother when, when he left her house. And um, he never forgives her. He really disliked his stepfather. And even in his 20s, um, she rarely comes around. Everybody knows to not really mention her. It's a very sore subject. All the girlfriends talk about seeing him do an impression of her that's pretty mean-spirited um mm-hmm. of her you know smoking and drinking um you know and and the thing is too that uh he invites her to the premiere of purple rain he invites her to his first wedding so he wants her to see these big moments mm-hmm. but at the same time you know he really didn't like her and he really did not welcome her back into his life um he he does embrace his father, John Nelson, in his 20s. They are hanging out. John's a co-writer on a bunch of songs on uh, on some of his bigger albums. Um, but um, you know, the, the, but not the mom. The mom is not uh, mom is not allowed to be part of the the the, the big success. So she comes around occasionally. But not 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 very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, and then obviously there's a lot of uh, romantic relationships, which I want people to read the book. So we'll skip that portion of it. But there is a theory, and you talk about in chapter ten that that uh, Prince was maybe bipolar. Because how else did he stay awake for two to three days straight? And he was drug free. He wasn't. He didn't drink. He didn't do cocaine or anything. The weird thing was too, I, I I think I read, I don't know if it was in the book or somewhere else where he was eating, he'd eat these, like he'd go on these uh, cake binges and he thought the cake helped him stay up. Cause to me, that would, that would put me to sleep. 
Well, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm trying to help my wife with something real quick uh, before she runs out. Um, <laughs> he, he, yes, in the I, I, I don't in the '80s, especially. I mean, like as far as I can tell, we're talking about a lifelong uh, insomniac. Um, mm. You know, as far as I can tell, this is a lifelong insomniac. I have stories of people saying, you know, in his teens, he's knocking on my door at 3 a.m. saying, "I want to record a song." You know, in my twenty, in his twenties, he's you know up for twenty four hours, forty eight hours, what have you, making music straight. You know, um, you know somebody in the NPG referred to him as a daywalker vampire. So it's just like, hmm. he, when does he sleep? It's not really clear. I mean, Jerome from the time, you know, who knew him in Minneapolis, you know, was with him like deep into his career. It's like, I've never seen him sleep. Like, when I go to bed, he's awake. When I wake up, he's already up and doing hmm. Like, I don't know when he's, I've, I've been on tour with him. I've been at home with him. I don't know when he sleeps. Um, you know, I, I don't know that it was a particular disorder, but it must have affected him. Um, you know, I mean, insomnia has a lot of effects on people. Um, so, I mean, that's part of what we're dealing with. And I think that's partly playing into like that he had folks felt he had like multiple personalities. Like you were never really clear who was going to walk in the door at any given time. You know, it might, you know, the revolution had names for four personality types that they saw consistently. There was Steve who was nice and sweet. There was uh, uh, a chef who was very alpha and aggressive and would go on stage and rock. Um, there was Marilyn Monroe, who was very sweet and coquettish and feminine, but treacherous, they said. And um, there was Fred Sanford, who's kind of like ornery and an asshole. And, and and these are the sorts of people who, you know, sort of might walk in the door on any given day. And they kind of tried to, like, vibe out real quick, like, who has arrived today? Is he the nice guy? Is he the ornery guy? Like, what are we about to get into here? And given, you know, and given who walked in the door, that sort of told you, like, what you're about to get into. Yeah. And then it's interesting. So, like, he didn't do the drugs or the uh, alcohol at the beginning of his career. But then eventually he started doing the um, opiates. And and that was because probably he was dancing around in high heels. Right. And that caused him pain. And so he had to do something about that. Right. Is that is that what kind of started? It wasn't he wasn't taking the drugs for recreational purposes. It was like actual like pain pills. So, yeah, he 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 takes opioids for many years to deal with pain. The hip was a big problem. I think it was also in the back and the lower back and the knee. Um, But uh, mainly in the hip. And he debated having hip surgery for many years. Um, I don't know that it was high heels specifically. I think that we're really talking about years and years of thousands of shows of never taking a break of, I, 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 at one point I counted, it was like 10 tours in 10 years. You know, you're talking global tours, you're talking, you know, long tours, um, I think it was the length of time in which he was touring all the time. I think that's the core problem here that, that led to this, 
physical issue that right. he was dealing with a hip that he was dealing with um i think that's that's the core of it Do you I, think I don't though, was see because i thought and this was even before i read your book i remember hearing that he was addic- addicted to the pain pills because he wouldn't have the hip surgery because he was a, a jehovah's witness is there truth to that is that against his religion to get surgery yes the, as far as you know the witnesses as far as he understood uh the witnesses did not want you to um cut the body in that way, did not want you to have surgery. Um, and him later in life becoming a witness uh, complicates the decision of whether or not to have surgery. Um, it makes that decision very fraught because the faith is saying, no, don't do that. And he's saying, but I want to do that because I'm in a lot of pain. Now, look, the faith was surely not saying it was okay to take opioids, right? right? It was yeah. surely we're not saying it's okay to be a drug addict. Yeah. Um, but, you know, these are the choices that he made. This is fascinating, too. I just read, finished the book today, and I read this part where when he was the Jehovah's Witness, that, that he would knock on people's doors and and, and try to yeah. preach them on religion. And it wasn't uncommon if you're if for him to knock on your door during a, a Minnesota Vikings game. I mean, how weird would that be to open your door and Prince is there? And you're just like, well, I mean, that would be shocking. It would be shocking. I mean, like, I think we got to remember how small Minneapolis is, right? And he's the biggest game in town and he'd been living there for a long time. So it wasn't totally surprising to see him around now he may not have knocked on your door ever before but he took being a witness very seriously yeah. he proselytized he did the thing but i mean like i have a small sense of that like i live in fort green brooklyn this is where spike lee uh grew up mostly um he's you know his first several films were set here his office is here hmm. we see him all the time we, you know, my, my kids are like, oh, there's Spike. Like, and you got to interview you know, him right on your podcast. I, I did. I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I've known him for a while, you know, yeah. but I mean, partly because we lived on the same, we lived on the same block when his kids were little, you know, I mean, like, you know, I mean, I mean, I know his wife. I mean, like he was a neighbor of mine, you know, so I mean, like we see him around, he's shooting a commercial. We just saw him the other day, he was shooting a Bitcoin commercial and then he was hanging out in the park, just sitting there and like. And he's riding by on his bicycle. So, I mean, like, he was in the world. So, you know, it, 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 he is in the world of this neighborhood. So if he ever, like, say, knocked on my door and said, hey, you know, can you give me a donation? I'm trying to finish this film about, you know, Marcus Garvey or whatever. It wouldn't be like, oh, my God, it's Spike Lee. Like, like you know, like if he knocked on your door, you know. Um, so, you know, I imagine folks in Minneapolis had been seeing him rising you know, most of them had seen him either at First Avenue or driving down the street or they knew where Paisley Park was. You know, I mean, he's by far the mega celebrity in the area. Um, but, yeah, he took being a witness super seriously, was knocking on doors. Um, actually, you know, interesting within that, too, he becomes a witness later in life. He was a Seventh Day Adventist as a hmm. child. Um, his mother and his grandmother um, were taking him to church. His father was also a Seventh-day Adventist, and they took him to church. And there, he's learning the story of, you know, the Bible and the world, 
And, and the Adventists, like the Witnesses, are an end-time faith. They believe the world is about to end, right? The whole thing with the Seventh-day Adventists, there was a, uh, a, a woman uh, uh, who was their leader in the 1800s, I believe in the 1850s, who said the world will end on this day. And when it didn't happen, she said, well, we have to be ready because it's going to happen at any moment. Hmm. So if, you know... So you're supposed to be constantly ready for the world to end. So the notion of apocalypse is constantly being discussed because the apocalypse mm. is always around the corner in the Seventh-day Adventist uh, uh, mythology, right? And philosophy mm. of the world. So this is the real reason why he's doing songs like 1999 and other songs about the apocalypse, like Let's Go Crazy. Because that's what, right? And I think at the time we thought like this is a response to the Cold War, but it's really a response to his religious upbringing. Mm -hmm. It fits with the 80s because we're all thinking about the Cold War, but he's really thinking about being a Seventh-day Adventist. That's interesting. Yeah, so towards the end there when he was getting addicted to the uh, the pain pills, and it was interesting because uh, Mark had an interesting uh, comment about that, how he said he got to the point where the addiction settles in, but he kept it hidden because he didn't want anyone to see him struggling. He was too, he was too proud to ask for help. Cause I think if he would have asked for help, he, he would have been able to, to get help from that issue. I mean, there's so many people that have stories to, you know, that have gotten off drugs like that. It's hard to help an addict who doesn't want to be helped. Right. And like the addiction becomes almost like a voice or, or a being an entity inside you that fights for survival and will do anything it can and use any argument and use any, any feeling and push any button to keep itself alive. Just as you know, you would try to keep yourself alive against anything that happened. You know, if somebody, if three guys ran in with a knife, you would fight to the death because that's what humans do. We try to say, you know, to save the body and the, Addiction becomes like a person inside of you that fights to save itself. So, you know, and, and I say this as an addict who no longer uses, and I know how hard it was for me to get past, you know, my stuff and what I was doing and the, the roller coaster of, of copping and using and feeling good and then coming down and want to use again. And the voice is constantly saying, you know, it's raining. Let's get high. It's sunny. Let's get high. It's snowing. Good reason to get high. Like, so everything, you know, it's morning. Good reason to get high. It's night. Good reason to get high. Like, so everything constitutes a good reason to get high to you. Like, I got a lot of work to do. Let's get high. I have very little work to do today. Let's get like, do everything to you is let's get high. Like, mm -hmm. you're kidding me. Um, and, you know, if the, if the addict is not truly ready to face that down and really doesn't want to be an addict anymore. You know, I mean, like I think about all the times that I fought to get off of uh, drugs and wasn't able to. And when I was, when I really wanted to, it was easier. That last time it was easier, um, not easy, but easier because the the values and the ideas around why I wanted to quit were more clear and tangible and 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 
desirable that I had ever had. Yeah, because you would think that he was getting close to that point if he hadn't have passed away. Because I love this thing where you talk about the end, where you know the loneliness of him. Like you know, he didn't. He'd had two failed marriages, and uh, you know, like he just didn't really have a lot of good friends. And I think there was a where he was at this party, and like Seinfeld was there, and Zuckerberg, and Chris Rock, and he seemed really lonely. And I love this quote that you had. You said it was finally like being a rock star was not enough to sustain him anymore. Like that was, cause that was, he had worked so hard and he got it. And then it's kind of reminds me of that Jim Carrey quote that it's like, he, where he says, I wish everybody could be rich and famous and get that. So then they could see that that's not the answer. And that seems like it kind of was for Prince too. It's like, he got what he wanted. He was huge. He was a famous rock star. And it's like, then he was still like struggling like with just being happy. I mean, I think, I think for most of his life, being a rock star fulfilled his dreams and it was what he wanted and it gave him, you know, access to indulge his creative, uh, impulses, you know, as a musician, um, to take care of people, causes, what have you, that he wanted to, um, uh, to have the life with women to never have to say, I'm sorry, you know, all these sorts of things. Um, you know, but yeah, as he got older, and others were 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 familying up, and you know his contemporaries were diving deep into family. He struggled to be able to become a family man, and partly that was because of the difficulty with relating to people. Music was always going to be number one, even if you were his wife. Music was his true wife, and you were going to be second. Um, you know, one of the guys talked about like, you know, if you are saying, hey, you know, come home from the studio and let's have dinner together, it's not gonna happen, you know? Or let's have a conversation about our relationship. Like, it's not gonna happen. Like he might make a song about you and the relationship so you understand where he's feeling, but like having a conventional date or having a conventional conversation, for the most part, these things were beyond him. Um, <clears throat> you know, he tried very hard, um, with his marriage to Maite, um, you know, they lost their first baby, which, um, you know, was, uh, presumably understandably traumatic, you know, um, some people lose a baby and their relationship continues and finds new footing and keeps going. Uh, sometimes that is enough to end the relationship. Um, and I, I think people said, you know, like that was the effective end of the relationship. Like they never really got back on good footing after that. Um, cause it was just very hard. You know, there was a yeah. miscarriage after that. So they tried again. Um, it didn't work out. And, you know, it was really tragic because when I visited Paisley park, uh, they were, uh, they, they had just, they had just gone through that experience. They weren't talking about it, but you could see that Paisley had been changed to make it like brighter and more colorful. You could see a child's jungle gym in the back. Um, you know, it, it had been this, like all this white cube and then he's about to have a baby and they made it like bright and colorful and like doves painted on the wall. 
And one of the profound disappointments of his life, understandably. And, wow. and I think that, as folks talked about, the profound disappointment of losing a child led him to sort of question God, led him to question his place in the universe and spirituality. And that led him into becoming a Jehovah's Witness. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. so the huge shaper of, you know, the entire last uh, period of his life. For sure. Well, one thing that you, because uh, for some people that's just maybe a casual Prince fan or who don't know him, for a lot of people, like they're only, the only thing they know about Prince is the Chappelle show. And so I was real, I had to like figure out, I was like, was he mad about that? But I read that he actually first, well, first Chappelle asked him to do it and he said no. But then after he saw it, he actually did think it was funny. And I think, didn't he even, uh, he put uh, the single Bref breakfast can wait, had cover art featuring uh, Chappelle's depiction of him. So he did think it was funny. Now tell me too, like, do you think it was accurate because you played basketball with him? It sounds like it was kind of similar. It's totally accurate. When I saw, <laughs> um, when I, when I saw that <laughs> sketch on Chappelle's show, I was like, they stole my story. I had an extraordinarily similar yeah, story with him. You do. Um, there wasn't, pancakes involved but <laughs> okay. you know like Chappelle Chappelled it up you know yeah. game blouses but I mean like he loved playing basketball you know from his teens to you know his 30s and 40s um you know there was a basketball hoop right in Paisley Park and you know he was he was all about playing basketball and he was a good basketball player you know as soon as we started playing uh you know he had on these red and white Nike high top uh, Air Force One high tops, um, and uh, but did he know, wear like of, did he wear like the frilly kind of stuff, or did he didn't wear like uh, shorts and a t shirt? No, he he had on he we caught he, we did a photo shoot and then he went right into a rehearsal right from the photo shoot. So he had on Prince gear, a black <laughs> scoop neck top, okay. right, and like black bell bottom pants and black boots and. When he said that he would play basketball with me, he said, like, bring out the box of sneakers. He said that to an assistant <laughs> and they brought out a box of sneakers and um, he took off the boots and put on the the Air Force Ones. Okay. And so, you know, the mask came off, which was the whole point of trying to play basketball with him for me. Because, yeah. you, you know, oh, okay. you felt this sense of like, you know. I'm giving you a certain self. I'm keeping it weird. I'm keeping it distant. Once you started dribbling that basketball, I felt like I was in competition with another boy. There's trash talking. There's competitiveness. There's, you know, the struggle to show, like, you know, who's superior. You know, we're going, uh, you know, we're just going at each other, you know, trying to. Mm -hmm fake each other and like he's good he looks like a ball player he's dribbling you know behind the back through the legs you know he looks totally comfortable and at ease and at home on the basketball court clearly you know not like an awkward game but a very smooth athletic silky game um the way he shot i would compare to like the form of like a steph curry like like great wow. form very smooth. I'm not saying the guy's going to go out and knock down 30 from, you know, from the half court line, but like, that's the, that's the form. That's how he looked that, that wow. smooth, that athletic traditional, you know, basketball form. So 
So he's knocking down jumpers, um, you know, and he was just fun to play with. And he was talking smack and, you know, making layups and making jumpers. And, you know, so, I mean, he, you know, he had constructed this world where we thought, mostly correctly, that all he ever did was was play music, which for the most part was true. But to find out that he was into basketball was a shock to a lot of people because he only let you see, yeah. you know, uh, some other people like let you into their world and like, I do do other things. Like music is not the entirety of my life. And he was like, no, no, music is the entirety of my life. This is all I care about. And also, didn't he play? He he was like the a Forrest Gump ping pong, like he was that good at ping pong. He was like Forrest Gump, and then he also, I think he played pool too. So he was competitive at these certain things. Yeah, yeah, he loved to compete. He was great. I'm told he was great at pool, like a pool shark. He was great at table tennis. Like could have maybe been a professional. Like nobody was beating him at any of these things. Like he was, he's very good. Yeah. Well, okay. So yeah, people need to get the book. We just touched the surface on that, but uh, you know, I just I did want to talk. If we, if you have time, we we'll talk about you a little bit because you've done a lot of cool stuff as well. You've done so many things. You worked at Rolling Stone, and then um, is this true? You you hosted a reality show called I'll Try Anything Once, where you tell me about this because it sounds intriguing. Where you did all a variety of different jobs, like rodeo clown and lumberjack. Yeah, that was a fairly extraordinary uh, uh, situation there. Um, there's a little a little show for a network called Treasure HD, and uh, we would drive generally to the middle of nowhere, sort of places, you know, places that are not normal like tourist destinations. And I would have a couple of days, like three days, to like learn some skill from a master uh, at it, and then practice it. And they wanted to see me fail. And then you would um, have some event where you were supposed to like perform and like, you know, it wasn't supposed to be like you would crush it. It was supposed to be like, you know, you and, and like my, my, my sort of ego would get all in it. Cause I'm like, you know, I want to like do good at it. But like we did lumberjack sports in Wisconsin, which was mainly log rolling you know what log rolling is like when you see Pete, like a log in the water and people are sort of like walking yeah. on the log and trying to make the other person fall, oh, Did okay, that, yeah. you know, or, or that, or like running across the log. So you try to run across, like, like huh. the log is in the pool and you try to run across it, um, which is really hard. I fell in this freaking pool like a million times. It got like freezing cold. Um, I did a demolition derby in indiana which was amazing uh with this amazing guy um you know i mean like that was scary as hell we are driving around you know crashing into people and getting crashed into and like for you know the one thing i realized that you start with like 10 cars in a relatively small space so you're not gonna get. You're not getting hit that hard at the beginning because there's not that much space to like, you know, to take off and 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 hit somebody. Like you gotta like have like a little distance away from somebody to really get. It. But like you know, after you know, like half of the group gets eliminated, you know, you can get some space and you can really hit somebody pretty hard. And the audience wants to see you hit people hard. They mm -hmm. you can't disengage if you're not hitting somebody every 
so often they 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 count you out. So you got to be like attacking each other, and um, it was it was kind of traumatic. Um, <laughs> you know, we did uh, movie stuntman school where we had to do mm. really fall really high falls. Um, did a, uh, 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 I did a solo uh, jump uh, from a plane, uh, which wow. was kind of crazy. Um, so it was like every week it was like, okay, so we're going to freak you out with some insane, uh, some insane task and see if you can le- you know, learn how to do it, you know, really fast. Um, wow. It was fun though. That does sound fun. So yeah, I mean, you've interviewed. The crazy, the crazy thing, the, the crazy thing is that in the last one we did, I was doing um, I was a private sanitation removal industry. I was in the private sanitation removal industry. Um, uh, one second. Um, sanitation uh, removal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, you know, you, you have trash you want removed you know, you may mm-hmm. call, you know, like got junk or something like that. Oh, you know, or, okay. you know, I was working with a, a group called the junk pros. Okay. So all that week I had been just sort of seeing different things that are part of being part of like a junk removal person. And I don't remember. Oh, 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 oh. so, but we knew all along that my first baby was about to come. So it was like any day now, you know, like this could happen. We assumed like it might come at night and like I'd call them the next day and be like, so I can't do the shoot tomorrow because we just had the baby we'll, we'll yeah. back a day or whatever it is. So the final day we were supposed to be, we were, I was supervising this team that was cleaning up this gigantic, horrific area behind this apartment complex in, uh, in uh, uh, the Bronx. And because I was supposed to be the supervisor and doing this work and I wasn't really picking up the garbage they were, and I was really like stopping to do interviews to talk about what we were doing and didn't want to seem like a dick to the guys. Like I'm not really working. I'm on my phone. Um, They wouldn't understand. Like I'm about to have a baby, maybe like who knows. So not really using my phone. Plus I have these gigantic gloves on, right? I'm picking up trash when I can. Um, So I'm not on my phone. Um, you know, and we're, we're finding just the most disgusting stuff you could imagine right behind this apartment building. Oh God. So finally we break for, uh, we break for lunch at 12 o'clock and I grab my phone and there's like 50 texts Oh shit! and I'm like, Oh shit. What is this? And the first like 20 are from my wife. Like, you know, like, you know, I feel like shit. Oh my God, it's happening. I'm going into labor, like short texts, like, where the hell are you? Like, ah, I'm losing it here, you know, and then like, and then like her friend takes over because like she called her friend, like, come pick me up, take me to the hospital. Like this is, you know, now this is Andrea and like I'm driving her to the hospital and we're getting to the hospital. Now she's doing like blow. And I'm like, holy shit, you guys, like we got to go to the hospital now. Like they've been texting me for an hour. Like, where are you? And she's at the hospital telling the baby, wait for daddy. And, uh, you know, the people are like, where's your husband? And she's like. I don't know. And then oh, like, shit. that is like this, this ridiculous. Like you don't know where he is. Like, Oh my God. So we race to the hospital. It's like straight out of a movie. Um, I get to NYU and I run in 
and I'm wearing coveralls that say the junk pros. And under that, a t-shirt that says the junk pros and a jacket <laughs> that says the junk pros. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, you couldn't tell him like, he's not from the, ju- like, he's just doing a TV show. Like, like he didn't know where he was. He's got all this junk removal stuff. He looks like a winner lady. Like good job. <laughs> um, oh. You know, and I'm smelly, like fresh from picking up garbage. Um, but the baby waited. I stripped down all that stuff. And, uh, you know, got some basic T-shirt and stuff in the hospital, like you know, root, like store or whatever. And uh, the baby came <laughs> after I had cleaned up a little bit. Um, oh, that's, that was kind of crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. So I mean, other you've done some amazing interviews, like uh, you know, famous ones like the R. Kelly and the the Suge Knight story is crazy. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, you got to interview him. That's really cool. Do you have any advice for people who want to be maybe specifically like a music journalist? Like how do you stand out as an interviewer or music journalist when there, cause it just seems like there's so many avenues for interviews now with like, everyone's got a podcast like me. So how do people stand out? Like is asking tough questions, a big part of standing out for being a journalist or interviewer? I don't think it's about asking tough questions. It's about listening at a level where they can start to tell you things that you did not know to ask. Mm. And if you're listening at a really, really intense level, you can start to hear between the lines. You know, some of it is paying attention, listening, you know, think about times when people have sort of like mentioned their mom a couple of times. And I'm like, is he kind of saying he wants to talk about his mom and like flowing into that area. And then they give me some incredible story, Um, Mm. you know, or just sort of using the common sense of like, huh, if I did that when I was 17, my mom would have freaked the fuck. You know, I'll tell you one story like that. I'll tell you two stories like that. Um, You know, interviewed Snoop for the cover of Rolling Stone several years ago Mm. and you know we we went to his his son's youth football league which was actually his youth football league that he had created for all the local boys to have a youth football league and um he was super i mean is super into football at an extraordinary extraordinarily deep level um we go to his house and we go out in the back where he's got this little man cave with like a little couch that's big enough to sit two people and, you know, this is his special place, right? His special man cave. And we're watching uh, footage of the 10-year-old team that they're going to play next week, okay? And, uh, you know, look at number 17 and how he runs to the right. We got to make him run to the left because he did it. So one picture on the wall that's framed, it's Snoop at a party wearing a big mink we had puffy wearing a big mink and then a shorter guy in between them wearing a big mink was who's the other guy because i know diddy you know who's the other guy you know this is a picture and clearly in a place of prominence that's my wife's father he was the biggest pimp in long beach in the 70s and just mentioning that 
led to this conversation about Snoop sort of leaving the rap game and semi leaving his family kind of for a minute to pursue his lifelong dream of being a pimp. And he tells this whole <laughs> thing about like wow. going off and being a pimp. And sort of we come to the end of the story and I'm like, you know, he's like, I never hit the girls, you know, just using my tongue, you know, and I wanted to see if I could do it. And I was really good at it. Um, and I was like, why did your wife leave you? And she's like, I already told you her dad was a pimp. She came from the life, so she kind of understood it at a hmm. different level than an average person might. So she was accepting when he came back and was like, okay, I'm fully dedicated to you and this family again now, and I'm not going to be taking that, that excursion anymore. Um, one more thing like that, smaller, but again, just paying attention. Um, I was doing a cover story for Rolling Stone on Beyonce, and I noticed that her assistant had Beyonce tattooed on her wrist. And I knew that it was a dumb question to ask because it would get me in trouble. But I had to take a step further in terms of curiosity and asking the girl, you have her name tattooed on your wrist? And she's like, no, this is my name. My name is Angela Beyonce. Beyonce is a family name. Uh, hmm. Angela was her cousin. Oh. And so I asked Beyonce about it, and she kind of knows some of the story. But Tina was more than happy to talk about it because that's her uh, maiden name, right? She was born Tina Beyonce with an I instead of an O, but she was Tina Beyonce before she was Tina Knowles. And, you know, when she got pregnant, she was like, we're going to name the baby Beyonce. And her dad was like, that's not a first name. And she's like, daddy, nobody outside of, you know, Louisiana knows that. Um, and, you know, they might've been in Houston Same. by that point, but, but they're from, the family is from Louisiana. Um, so, you know, it was um, just sort of being open and listening. You know, I don't think folks want to hear uh, you know, their, their, their heroes or whatever squirm, right? But if you can get to a deeper level of understanding of them, that they're telling you, like, I was a pimp, you know, just five years ago. I, you know, my, you know, this is my family name, whatever the case may be. Um, I think that gets to a really interesting place uh, for folks. Hmm. That's no, that's really good advice. I like that. Yeah, that is, that is a big portion of doing the interviews is listening and, and finding these clues almost right that's got to be a big piece of it yeah but sometimes you know stuff though and you bring it up like with the the suge knight like did you know that you were going to piss him off when you asked him about the lawsuit though or did you just were you that just your natural curiosity um well let's see i interviewed suge knight because i was doing a story on dick griffey who was one of the great right record men record executives of the seventies. And I was doing a story for the New Yorker and I kept asking Dick, let's go see Suge. Cause Suge, he's, cause Dick said Suge was one of his uh, mentees. Right. And he kind of said like, yeah, you know, me and Suge, you know, sort of started death row, but he cut me out of it and I'm suing him because, you know, I should be getting a piece of death row. Like what the hell? 
Um, and Dick was this great, gigantic, tough guy, brilliant, you know, very much Suge before Suge. Not quite the gangster that Suge was, but in many ways, you know, tough and smart and shrewd before Suge. And um, so Dick finally called Suge and said, I want to come over and, you know, as reporter and, you know, I mean, and then he left, you know, he drove me there, you know, but then he left and then he, so he didn't leave death row. He just left the room and I interviewed Suge and I'm asking him different questions about Dick Griffey. And, you know, and then I was like, so what's up with the lawsuit? That's all it was. It wasn't one of these probing questions. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was probing, but it wasn't like, you know, this sort of in-depth, sharp, nailed down question. It was like, you know, so Dick's suing you. What's up with the lawsuit? You know, which I think is kind of naive. Like, I think I was in my 20s. I should have had a better question. And I definitely did not think that he was going to get uh, super upset um, and freak out and want to freaking kill me. Yeah, because um, that's not somebody I'd want to piss off. I mean, yikes. I That's because when I heard that story, I thought, man, he's fucking ballsy. But maybe you were just so it sounds like you were just more naive is what you're saying. Definitely naive, but I definitely was like, you can't be afraid of these people. I mean, like, there's definitely ballsiness in that. It's like, you definitely can't be afraid. You can't tell me that you were afraid to ask him a question. Like, I definitely had would get like the little devil on my shoulder and be <laughs> like, you can't tell me you were afraid. Like, you didn't ask him that because you were afraid. Like, what's he gonna do? Freaking kill you? like beat you up over a question like and 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 I don't say that just for shook like anybody I would have interviewed in that era of my career I would definitely like what are you afraid and like you know if that voice came out I was like well I have to ask you I can't you know I can't kowtow to fear um uh so yeah it was definitely like what's up with the lawsuit he's like I don't know what you're talking about what i'm talking about and he almost tried to give you like an out you could have like it almost like that was like his hint to say like i know what you're talking about like that was like okay never mind but you're like no you know what i'm talking about you kind of uh, you probing. know I, I i i couldn't you know once i decided to go in i couldn't let it go i couldn't let it go with like i don't know what you're talking about yeah, yeah. um and uh you know next thing you know he's um He's, uh, <laughs> hey, at least he's, he didn't dangle you from the balcony like uh, he did with Vanilla Ice. Is that it? Do you think that's a true story? A true story. Um, um, I don't have any 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 inside information on it, but I do think it's a true story. Um, he, he he basically this is traumatizing to even remember the the but he ba there was only one door out of his office at death row. So I was sort of like stuck in his office because I was like, I'm trying to leave. And he's like, you're not going anywhere. Sit the fuck down. And he's gigantic. And it's his office. And I'm like, oh. and nothing has happened yet. So let me not push it. Um, and he had this um, guy, clearly blood, fresh off the street. I mean, like fresh off the street, maybe fresh out of prison. I have no freaking idea. But like, 
way harder than anybody who I ever interacted with. And the guy would just stand there like, tell me what to do, you know? And if he had said, you know, beat that guy up, like it would have been a problem. Um, And at one point in my mind, I was like, okay, so the over under now is one broken bone. Like if I only have one broken bone out of this, then I'm good. Like that's, I'm good. Like, you know, two is bad. Like, but one, like we're, you know, we're changing the threat matrix to orange to where like, you know, if only this level of bad happens, then we're ahead of the game. Um, and the guy kind of, you know, like barked at me for a minute and Sugar was kind of threatened me and using him to threaten me. And it was very stressful and very scary. And then finally that guy left and uh, we actually continued the interview. He asked me to rewind my tape to the beginning and record to record over our prior conversation. But then in an extraordinary show of recall, he repeated his part of our 45 minute conversation. That's crazy. You know, like remembering like what he said in order, um, you know, he wasn't repeating my questions, but he knew like, you know, and, and, and he didn't say that, but he knew like, then you asked about this, then you asked about this, then you asked about this. And like, and, and then when we got to the part about the lawsuits, he was like, okay, shut off your tape recorder and get the fuck out. I'm like, <laughs> Wow. Um, but it was, it was, it was, it was, it was an extremely, definitely the most frightening, I think, probably the most frightening moment of my adult life. I really didn't know if I was going to get, you know, my ass really beat. Crazy. Yeah. Well, that's cool that he let you go and, uh, and you got out safe. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> that's good. Did you piss off anybody else? Was there other, are there other ones? I mean, the R. Kelly ones, everyone knows about that, but is there anybody else that you pissed off? I mean, you know, I don't know, you know, it, it, I mean, you know, there have been some people not necessarily played out as dramatically as that. I mean, like, you know, I'm going to let me let me take it inverse. Right. Because part of the thing you have to do as well is understand how to pull the person in. What do they want to talk about? They will be more interesting if you are talking about what they want to talk about. And um, I was doing an hour with Courtney Love for Fuse. Mm. Um, and I was a big whole fan. I was a gigantic Nirvana fan. I was very, very excited. She sits down in the chair and she is not paying attention to me. She does not give a shit about me. Usually you can kind of get some chit chat and get some vibe going before you start rolling. Yeah. She is not fucking with me. She clearly has an attitude. She's not giving me any any attention. She didn't give me any vibe. Um, you know, she's kind of like, like imagine like the Courtney you would expect, like sits down, slumps in her chair, like she couldn't smoke, but she, you know, sort of had the vibe of like, I'm smoking. I really don't give a shit about you. Leave me alone. And I'm like, we're about to like launch into like an hour interview. Like it should be like, and like, no, I'm getting nothing from her. And <clears throat> her assistant keeps running over and shoving kind of shoving her phone in her face and at the time i perceived it as kind of rude like you're not helping me create this moment but in actuality the assistant i found out later the she had had 
like an overnight, all night fight with whoever was then her boyfriend. Mm. And she thought that they were going to break up and she was distraught about that. And the assistant is showing her like, look, he texted, say, it's going to be okay. We can talk later. Like, don't worry about it. Like, we'll figure it out. So she's trying to help. The assistant's trying to help me, like, chill her out. But she's coming in, like, just on on 100 and just, like, rip-roaring. So she's not giving me any vibe. And the first 15 minutes or so, it's all, like, short answers. She's giving me nothing. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. And 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 then she starts saying you know, five more minutes. Go another 45 minutes. And she's like, five minutes and I'm out of here. And I'm like, so what can I do to keep it going and keep her going? Now, one thing I was like, you know, I am not sitting across from Courtney Love and not discussing Nirvana, one of the great bands of their time. Mm -hmm. So I like leap, I was supposed to go to Nirvana like later but I left into Nirvana like earlier, like, so started asking about Nirvana, really interesting stuff about Kurt and her. I remember talking about her like wrestling with Kurt, like when they were first dating, which is part of how she knew like he was the guy for her and this sort of thing. And we kind of transitioned out of Kurt and I'm trying to figure out how to keep her engaged. Cause it's like that moment of like, Am I keeping this person engaged or are they going to like flake out and be like, you know, I'm, I'm sick of talking to you, you know, because if she could get up and walk out, like who's going to like, you know, what's going to stop her? Um, and I figured that she probably would want to talk about sex. So I started to be like, so the question was, which of the, because she had a slew of like famous men who she was with after Kurt. And I was like, so which of the, I phrased it like, which of the famous boys is the best kisser? Which is like, she immediately, like, the whole body language changed. The whole mood and the vibe changed. And she was like, none of them. I educated them. I was better than them. You know, if you're not a pretty girl, she's saying, you have to bring the party. You have to be the one who, like, gets things sparked. So, you know, I was not the pretty girl. So I had to show them. I had to bring it to them. I had to put it on them. And she's not talking about kissing anymore. Um, (laughs) But, you know. Yeah. So now, like, the whole mood and the vibe and the body language has changed. And then it's like, so wait a minute. When you're, like, rocking an audience, is that like you're, like, doing intercourse to them? Uh, Like, now she's fully invested. Now she's like, yes, it is like I am fucking the audience and I love it and I'm riding on top of them and I'm giving it to them da, 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 da. and then it was like you know let's talk about your current band and now she's like really into it like I really want to talk about the band that I'm with right now like this is post hole and okay. like you know and then like singing the praises of the musicians who were like rocking with her and how much fun they were and how great they were and I'm totally off page, right? Not doing the questions that I was supposed to be doing because I'm just trying to get her engaged and wanting to be in this conversation. And now that we've gone through talking about sex, talking about her, you know, her prowess, talking about, you know, relating to audiences, talking about her bandmate, now she's like, 
fully invested and awake and there and like excited about the subjects. And um, it definitely turned around more sharply than I think any interview that I had ever done. Um, Cause it was just like plugging into like, what does she want to talk about? And I think anytime you get somebody talking about what they really want to talk about, what they mm. love talking about, um, you're going to get the best out of that person. Oh, wow. That's great advice. Very educational. Well, this has been amazing. Um, I do like to end each episode with a uh, charity. I don't know if, if your PR person told you. So is there a charity that you like to support or you want to give a quick shout out to? There is not. Um, I mean, you know, I, t- I try to take care of my kids. Um, you know, I, 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 my wife keeps bugging me, but there's not necessarily, I, no, I mean, like, you know, we do, we've done, I, maybe you can cut this out. Cause I'm not up to speed <laughs> on this. They didn't tell me that we were going to do this. I mean, like you can send it to me later. Do. You can send it to me later. I'll just, I always put it in the notes. So like, I'll put your website so people can go to your website, check out the, you know, get the book and, uh, follow you and stuff. And then, you know, if they have money left over from buying your book, then, you know, throw a few bucks to whatever charity that you like. There's a food bank type situation that my wife and by extension, I have been a part of. Like we go to this food bank in Brooklyn and there's these free fridges that sit around different bases in the poorer areas of Brooklyn. And we fill up the fridge with, you know, like fruits and vegetables and bread and canned stuff and like you know, it's just stuff people need, you That's know, awesome. and, um, and, uh, you know, and sometimes it might be cookie dough. It's not all just like healthy stuff, but like, right. you know, stuff people need and want and they, they're free. So anybody can come and open the fridge and take what they want and what Ooh. they need. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, and that's just a food. You bank? Know, it, yeah. Well, there's a food bank that helps us source food for, Cause like we, we, you know, like I've driven her over to the food bank, we get loaded up and put all the stuff in the free fridges. Hmm. Um, but I don't even know, like, what is the part of that that folks could donate to? So I'd have to, I'd have to speak to her about like, you know, like how to, how to do yeah. that. Yeah. Just send me the link later uh, if you can. Uh, Otherwise I'll, I'll find something similar to that. Uh, food banks of America or, or one of those other cha- there's yeah. some feed America, I think is another, there's tons of charities are similar. So that's a very good that cause. Cool. I love it. Very cool. Well, this has so, been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. I totally enjoyed it. Oh yeah. All right. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks. Okay, later. Right. Okay, bye. Well, thank you for making it through that episode. If you got to this point, I know the audio wasn't great, but the content was, and I want to thank to Ray for coming on the show. Make sure to check out the book, Nothing Compares to You, to hear more about Prince and follow Toure on social media to keep up with him. And as always, I'm going to harass you a little bit to follow me on social media and like and share and comment on all my stuff. That helps me out immensely with the algorithm so that people can find my posts and the podcast can grow. Um, Again, my main goal right now is to grow the YouTube channel. So if you can subscribe to that and maybe convince a friend or two to subscribe as well, I will forever be grateful for that. And if you really want to show your appreciation, you can write me a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you do that and you send me a screenshot, I will give you a shout out on the show. Uh, That's a limited time offer only. So thank you so much for listening. 
Have a great rest of your day and remember to shoot for the moon.